I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. This show is an exploration of deals in the private markets. Through conversations with private equity managers, we'll dive into individual deals to learn about deal dynamics, companies, and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. Season one of Private Equity Deals focused on owners you know. Season two focuses on companies you know. You can keep up to date and join our mailing list at capitalallocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On episode four of season two of Private Equity Deals, Sam Byrne discusses the Yellowstone Club. Sam is the managing partner and founder of Cross Harbor Capital Partners, a leading real estate firm with a multi-strategy platform across property type, geography, and capital structure that manages $7 billion and has put to work $28 billion across 350 transactions. The Yellowstone Club is a private exclusive ski club located in Big Sky, Montana, whose members reportedly include Bill Gates, Eric Schmidt, Justin Timberlake, and Tom Brady. Cross Harbor bought the club out of a messy bankruptcy in 2009. Our conversation covers the history of the Yellowstone Club, process of purchasing the assets out of bankruptcy, and Cross Harbor's implementation of real estate, membership, and community development over the 14 years since. We close with Cross Harbor's pending exit of the investment, adjacent opportunities, and lessons learned. Please enjoy my conversation with Sam Byrne. Sam, thanks so much for doing this. Pleasure. It's great to be here, Ted. Why don't we kick off with the background of Cross Harbor? Cross Harbor is a real estate private equity firm that I founded with my co-founder, Bill Kremer, 31 years ago. We do all different types of private equity real estate investing, primarily in high yield in both debt and equity, and manage about $7 billion of equity presently, heavily focused on distressed and opportunistic investing. How do you think about your style of real estate investing? We're not looking to buy the market. We are a high yield lender investor who is somewhat property type agnostic, really looking for the best possible attachment points, if you will in collateral, whether it be in debt or equity, and trying to get high yield and relatively high multiple. There's lots of competitors that are trying to drive higher IRRs, but don't try to achieve the multiples that we're seeking. We're trying to do both. And it leaves us as a relatively modest, specialized oriented firm. We're going to dive into a deal that you may perhaps be best known for, which is the Yellowstone Club. (laughs) And I think it'll help to just give a description of this asset and what it is, both the experience and the business. The experience, which is where I started because I was a member before I was involved in the business, is a really unique thing. A private ski area that is as large as the largest ski areas in the country, exclusively for the use of basically 914 family members who live there and have homes there. 
the whole property encompasses 16,000 acres, has more than 40 miles of paved roads, its own complete support infrastructure with fire service, police, mountain operations, food and beverage management, you name it, it's basically a self-contained town that has one of the five largest ski areas in the United States that is completely private. So think about Beaver Creek, make it 30% bigger. Beaver Creek does 1.1 million skier visits per year. And the Yellowstone Club last year did just over 70,000 skier visits in total through the whole season. So how does that work as a business? Well, it's primarily a real estate business. So if you think about the traditional golf or beach community, Discovery Land or one of the major developers might have created over time in the private club concept, the Yellowstone Club is that with a private ski area, which is very unique in the United States or really anywhere because most ski properties in the United States are on leased land that require public access. The 16,000 plus acres that make up the Yellowstone Club is all fee-owned private land that's owned by the club. And thus, you can have this private membership experience there with no outside restrictions. So you mentioned you were a member before you got involved as an owner. Why don't you take me back into what the history of that ownership was before you got involved? It seems like ancient history now, but the original founders were Tim and Idra Blixith, which is more than 25 years ago. So 1998, I think, is when they first started offering access to skiing and the property and then subsequently built lifts through the early 2000s. The property was extremely successful in the early 2000s. So I think there was a lot of people that seriously questioned whether the business model could ultimately work. The operating side of the business model it hadn't been done before, so it was quite novel. It's got a even more colorful history prior to 98 because the property was a amalgamation of a bunch of checkerboarded land that goes back in US history to the 1880s when the railroads were granted parcels of land and checkerboard from the government in exchange for developing railways across the United States to get to the West and expand commerce throughout the United States. And those checkerboard land parcels exist throughout Montana. Blixith was successful through two acts of Congress in aggregating the parcels that became both Yellowstone Club and Spanish Peaks, which is an adjacent property in another county. And created Yellowstone Club basically at a whole cloth as a private membership experience. What happened from the aggregation of the land to the formation of the club? I think the club was first offered to initial investors, which was probably a pretty risky proposition before even lifts were completed right around 2000. And the ski experience was extraordinary. This part of Southwest Montana gets tremendously fulsome and consistent snow that's very dry. So it's a great ski experience. And I think early buyers there were putting up between five dollars and $600,000 to make preferred investments and get access to a lot that would ultimately be built. And a large group, I think 50 or 60 of those folks were the real cornerstone members of the club between 2000 and 2003 or four when there was a more expanded real estate offering. Southwest Montana and the Yellowstone Club really took off between say 2002 and 2006. I went out originally in 2005 as a guest of a family friend and fell in love with the place immediately just because the ski experience was so extraordinary. So what went wrong? A number of things went wrong, not really related to the property. Really the biggest tripwire was that the former owner who had been bankrupt previously 
was a really aggressive business guy and had borrowed from Credit Suisse First Boston $375 million in one of the more absurd loans that was probably ever issued. It was created in order to stuff CLOs that CS was creating with industry diversification across SIC codes. And so they needed real estate loans, but there really weren't real estate loans that fit the bill for this type of securitization, nor developers that wanted them. So they went out to developers who had basically long-term cash flows from land sales. And despite YC being very successful, Blixith basically borrowed $375 million. And the day he got the loan, dividended it to himself. Didn't share it with his partners at the time, which owned something like 20% of the partnership. And then went on an extraordinary spending spree trying to expand the club internationally, largely with a whole slew of personal assets. And was subsequently sued by his limited partners who were successful in going after him. And then ultimately was caught up in a nasty divorce. His wife got the club and she was going to partner with us and Discovery Land to basically resurrect it and turn its reputation around. And that was in the summer of 2008. And her financing was from a Lehman affiliate and the Lehman affiliate was gone by September. The club was bankrupt as the world was falling apart in October. And we came in and made a dip loan ahead of Credit Suisse at the end of November that year, got control of the bankruptcy plan, and ultimately through a very complex bankruptcy over the course of the next six months, were successful in reorganizing the club and taking it out of bankruptcy into new ownership in July of 2009. So when you looked at that asset, even before it was bankrupt, what did you see as the attractiveness of the opportunity? I'm a believer in finding opportunities that can generate high multiples as well as internal rate of return. So these large covered land plays, while they can be tricky, if bought at the right values and have unique characteristics, can really provide exceptional returns over time. And the Yellowstone Club has proven to be that for our investors. In this case, I also believed fundamentally that it was such a unique experience. We were in the early days, having suffered for many, many years through undercapitalized ownership of the ski industry becoming consolidated. And what ultimately happened in the ski industry with both Vail as a public company and Altera as a probably soon to be public company is that the industry really got recapitalized around the idea of consolidation and these past programs, which started to drive significant volume to resort areas in skiing. And really for many, many years, and I think still today, changed the experience. It's been an overcrowded experience. They have lift capacity issues at many resorts and the experience changed. And so the access to private skiing with perfect grooming and a much safer experience was something that was truly unique. And the club was just an extraordinary asset for that reason. And that's one of the reasons I really believed in the product ultimately selling. What do you see as the risks in the deal? When we bought the deal originally, it was a huge consumer of capital, cash. One, a lot of the amenitization hadn't been completed. And ultimately, we have spent more than $600 million on ski expansion, restaurants, amenitization, performing arts facilities, you name it, we sort of have it there. New fire and 
security facilities and so on and so forth. So there was a tremendous amount of capital investment that was required. And it was losing money hand over fist when we took it over. The club was losing something like $18 million a year. And we did not predict it to break even on operations until it got into the 650, 700 member range relative to dues. Between those two factors, it required a tremendous amount of capital. So you've got a money losing asset that needs a tremendous amount of capital to put in, but alongside a great ski experience. How did you map out what you thought the upside could be? We had 700 homes to sell, 650 to 700 homes to sell. Each one of those residential density units or RDU generated a certain amount of profitability after the cost of whatever infrastructure. We did a couple of things different than what most people would do. One, we concentrated the vast majority of the remainder of the 500, 600 units that were in the club to be built into a more urbanized setting and created built product where the margins were considerably wider. We also capitalized the deal to be able to create speculative product. We built spec product at the very right time in the economy for it to be sitting there where there was very little in the ski market nationally that had been built. Most stuff was still reeling or being worked out from the 2008, 2009, 2010 timeline. By 2012, we had product on the ground and we had an ample willing buyer population. So I'd love to walk through some of what you went through to acquire the asset. You mentioned before the financial crisis hit, you were involved in conversations to buy it alongside a discovery land with the original owner. What did the economics of that look like at the time? Well, before 2008, we were interested in buying it for somewhere in the mid $400 million range. We had an agreed upon price. Ultimately, the seller was unable to deliver on closing the deal, which may have been one of the more fortunate things that would have happened for us. But we had it capitalized and we were prepared to close in April of 2007. In that process, he ultimately looked at backing his former wife in an effort to stabilize the club. We had lent some money to both husband and wife to keep the operations going at the club and taken a significant amount of collateral. We had also put some things in place that in bankruptcy would give us protections, provided they survived executory challenges in the Ninth Circuit. And we had a lot of experience in bankruptcy and we were successful in that. We ended up having a significant seat at the table. Credit Suisse was facing down a very significant loss in the bankruptcy and they fought tooth and nail to try to keep control of it. We had powerful people on the phone for hours a day. They were so committed to their family's experience in there and they weren't going to let Credit Suisse take that away from them. I recognize that was the constituency because they had four or $5 billion of home value on the ground. They were the ones with the biggest seat at the table, not Credit Suisse with $300 million or me with a couple of dip loans in the thing. That's really where doing a case study on this thing would be so interesting, starting with why Credit Suisse started to create these loans. You know, they did 17 of them and 16 of them failed. I couldn't figure out why they were fighting us so hard in bankruptcy. And it was largely because they didn't want precedent to get set because they were being sued by the largest CLO, no buyer in the country over these loans. And ultimately, it turned out that they were committing fraud throughout the market. And then when they got caught, they tried to move all the origination of these things to the Cayman Islands to avoid firea. I mean, it was really pretty dastardly stuff. 
they also didn't understand the nature of what they had for collateral in Montana. Montana is one of the few remaining Farm Act states. And so during the Depression, a whole number of states that were more agriculturally oriented put in restrictive foreclosure rules around parcels of land that were larger than single family. So in Montana, it's anything over 160 acres has to go through judicial foreclosure for two years. So it's very hard to get clean title through a conventional foreclosure on a large parcel of land. And this was something that Credit Suisse had missed. So they tried to have an accelerated liquidation in bankruptcy, which would have shut the club down. The judge saw through it in the bankruptcy court. And ultimately, we were successful in getting control over the Chapter 11 case and taking it through a successful reorganization and sale. So once you own this back in 2009, you mentioned there's 700 homes for sale. You've got to maintain the ski mountain. How did you set out your game plan for how you were going to go about developing this out? I had a three-pronged strategy at the time, and one was repair and rehabilitate. It had a bad reputation. Not sure that could have had a worse reputation. A lot of vendors hadn't been paid. And so locally, the club did not have good standing in the community. Myself and the general manager, as part of the ultimate bankruptcy plan, delivered checks to virtually every single creditor for 100 cents on the dollar, which was extremely unusual, but it was a requirement of the bankruptcy plan that we put forward because we knew we couldn't function in the community if we couldn't get that liquidity to the people that had been working at the club and had been building at the club and so forth. So we really started out by repair and rehabilitate. There were a number of foreclosures and messy situations within the club related to the former owners. So we spent the first few years doing nothing but cleaning that up. That was really our goal. We did not expect to generate much revenue at all in the first few years. We wanted to clean up the messes that were there. The second phase was product creation, basically. So coming up with product that we thought people would want and gravitate to, creating spec programs, creating ways in which we could get people into custom homes in a very short period of time. So instead of having to go out and build something that might take 24, 28 months, we could get them into in 14 months. And we worked with our partners at Discovery Land. We worked with all the great local architects in Montana, did a lot of market study work, and basically created product during that next phase. Fortunately, after about 2011, 2012, the world was looking better and people were interested in the product and the experience was extraordinary. We continually reinvested in the experience. The most important thing about the club in my mind, beyond the membership and our extraordinary staff is the ski experience. That's really what drives it. That's what makes it so unique. And so we have a fantastic team that works on the mountain under our esteemed mountain manager who's been there since day one. And we try to deliver the best possible ski experience all the way around. So every part of your experience on the mountain. And so we continue to invest in that between investing in snowmaking, new lifts, and expanded ski terrain. So we increased the ski terrain more than 30% at the club into an entire new area so that as we grew, the experience of being able to ski right up to a lift and get right on and have that private powder ski experience was maintained. What was that third prong? The third prong for investors was monetization. Once we had invested all this capital, it was basically starting to distribute some of the proceeds from sales once we had the club on steady footing, operating at a break-even basis, and then property values just exploded. 
in the marketplace, and we were able to start generating significant cash returns. I think we've returned four and a half times, I think, of invested capital from the initial capitalization. So alongside the real estate, that's really the driver of the investment opportunity, what did it take to create that operation so that it was break-even, both the revenue side and the cost side, so that that operation that was, say, burning $15 million a year got to break-even? I mean, we didn't do a tremendous amount of rationalization on the operating side. We were comfortable losing money. Now, some of the stuff was just pure waste from the prior owner, and we were able to take that out. But you know, we worked our way down each year by a couple million dollars. We added new memberships. We have multiple revenue sources. We have people come and spend money. So if you can get people to use the restaurants more, there's less of an operating loss to fund there. We have ski lessons. Everything that you would have at any conventional resort we have, and all those things are revenue generating, they may not ultimately make money. Interestingly, in a private club model, you almost will assume over time that you're going to lose money on food and beverage, particularly if you're trying to run as many outlets as we run, more than 12 on the mountain, and you are trying to deliver a great food and beverage experience. But ultimately, that's where your dues is going to help you subsidize those losses. We have revenues from operations. We have dues. And then we have revenue from both our capital charge, which is basically your membership deposit when you come in, and then selling real estate. We're continually reinvesting in the property for the first few years until we got the operating losses down to a very manageable level, and we're able to spend the money on capital to continue to create the experience. How'd you go about growing the membership base enough to make the economics work? The curation factor of the membership can't be overstated. Like the amount of work that both the original membership took. So I went to the original 260 members that we bought it out of bankruptcy with, gave them all the right to co-invest in the deal, but also said to them, listen, you have to be part of the solution here. One and done. If every one of you brings one great friend, we not only make the club better, but we get to that break-even operational standpoint. And so the membership all invested both emotionally and financially in being successful with that. And what I gave back to them was infrastructure that they never expected. So I built restaurants that were never promised in our business plan, dramatic expansion of the ski terrain that wasn't promised, expansion of lift capacity, added more snowmaking, created more summer experiences, built a tremendous amount of infrastructure for retail and for ski operations in the new village core. And ultimately, even built a performing arts center in the club that cost us, let's say, $40 million that is used almost exclusively for charitable operations. We have performances there by top artists during the year, and the revenue that we generate from ticket sales goes largely to support our community foundation, which is one of the largest charitable organizations now in Montana. So those types of things were the real difference makers, if you will. And I when I talk about this in our larger business, I like to think about catalytic change. So if you look at the linear value creation that you can have over time in just building property value, if along the way you can shift that line upward by delivering on something very, very unique that creates sort of a catalytic change, like a performing arts center in a community that is something that you can't experience anywhere else, I think those things are very, very important to value creation. When you come at this with real estate investment experience, how do you figure out how to operate the business side of it? 
great question. The typical golf club has a three or four or five million dollar budget. The typical, say, Discovery Land Beach Club, you know, very high end, great golf experience might be something less than 20. And I think the Yellowstone Club's operating budget is more than a hundred million dollars. So you have to look at it really quite differently than club operations. So we looked at this as if it were running a resort business and built a whole infrastructure in Montana around that. So it has a general manager, it has the assistant general manager, both with tremendous operational experience. They're long dated with us. We have a highly experienced chief financial officer with a deep accounting staff. We have an entire development company out there with 60 people in it that just operates the development side of the business that we do with Discovery. And then on the operating side, we have everything you would expect from a large resort. Our head and food and beverages, the profile there is somebody who comes from a place like Bellagio or one of the major resorts that's running multiple F&B outlets at any given time, trying to deliver on quality while minimizing waste and making sure that the operations are running efficiently and smoothly. How did you figure all this out from your Boston home? Well, you made a point earlier that this is really what we're most known for, but we had a large operating business. And most of the time as a capital provider, we take a backseat to our operating partners. The Yellowstone Club reputationally had a lot of exposure for us, and we knew this. And so it really required a face. So it required spending probably an inordinate amount of time during those early years being out there. So either myself or Mike Melman from Discovery made a commitment to be out there every weekend during operating times so that we could meet with members, meet with prospects, be very close to the coalface of operations, understand what was going on. And I was particularly passionate about the ski experience and how that was delivered to the membership. And so I was a pretty frequent face on the mountain and being seen by people. So every weekend, every holiday Every time there was a school break, I was out there with my family basically working for the first five or six years of the operations of the club. So now you're 14 years into this. What's transpired in terms of those 700 homes and how far along are you on that journey? Well, we're almost done. (laughs) After this year, we'll be down to, I think, 38 homes remaining to be built, two-thirds of which are already sold. And they're in the last phase of what we call the Yellowstone Club Village Core. And the construction there started last fall and will go on for the next 36 months. But basically, we would expect to pre-sell all the remaining homes there. The club operates at a positive margin. I wouldn't say makes money because all of that money gets reserved for future CapEx. And basically, the business model there is that the dues levels that are currently set up, we should be able to operate with capital and with operational break-even and be able to put money in reserve for long-term capital needs like lift replacements and so forth. We've just gone through a big capital investment cycle with roads and lifts. We really want to have the club be perfect when we're done developing there. And ultimately, this is a turnover club. So the club actually reverts to the ownership of the entire membership when we turn it over. And that'll be sometime in the next three or four years. I expect we'll stay involved with some operating businesses related to the club that we will continue to own, but the members will own and ultimately govern the property for the long term. Now, separately, as we were building out the Yellowstone Club and all the amenitization that was required outside the gate, so expanding airlift into Bozeman, 
getting a downtown built in Big Sky, seeing a hospital built, getting a high school built so that our employees could stay there when their kids got older, getting community housing, workforce housing built. All of those things led us to making significant additional investments in Montana. So out of two other large bankruptcies, we acquired Moonlight Basin and Spanish Peaks. And we still have in those two communities, 1,600 more homes to build. So we'll be there for the next 15 to 20 years. Our development affiliate out there will continue. We also bought all of what is effectively the downtown of Big Sky or Big Sky and Town Center, where we've been developing already for a few years, really as a amenization strategy for the community. So we saw that the community needed more food and beverage outlets outside the gate, more retail activity, more gathering places, community centers, which we were involved in getting built, just coming up on its one-year anniversary. So all of those things have led us to become a much bigger player in Southwest Montana. We have investments in community housing, in conventional housing, and in the downtown of Big Sky, as well as hotels. We opened a $500 plus million montage resort hotel approximately a year ago out there, and that project continues, has been extremely successful. We'll open the first one and only resort in North America in late 2024, which is under construction right now. And we're also super excited about that. So we're deeply involved in things outside of YC and we'll continue to be involved in the community for the next 15 plus years. When you exit a deal like this that gets converted over to the membership, usually you think of buying an asset, there's cash flows, and then you're selling it hopefully at the same or higher multiple. In this case, it sounds like there may not be that type of exit sale event. The contrary is what you want to make sure you leave in it so that it's well-capitalized going out the door. And so we've given that a tremendous amount of thought. Our profits have been coming out over the last five, seven years, and will continue to as we monetize the remaining real estate. But ultimately, there's no residual value for us. It'll be a slow wind down. We're fortunate in having our other businesses in Montana because we can transition staff, particularly the high-quality development staff that we have over to other things and not lose those people in the marketplace. So we're fortunate for that reason. And so we'll continue to have those teams in place until we're fully built out and we make a graceful exit as the developer, if you will. I intend to continue to be involved in the club for a long time because I'm quite passionate about it. I want to make sure we do a great job with our exit. We've looked at a lot of club properties that were developed over time. There's really only two examples of anything of this scale And there's lots of lessons to be learned about how to do it well and continue to maintain property value for all the constituents out there. And when I say the constituents, it's not just our homeowners, it's really first and foremost, our extraordinary staff, but also the greater community. The Yellowstone Club sits within a county, Madison County in Montana, where we don't touch the county by any roadway. We don't use any direct services that are in the county. It's one of the largest counties in the country, very sparsely populated. But we make up more than 75% of the tax base. We're an important element of the Southwest Montana community from all different perspectives, from employment and from our tax base. And we want to make sure that that's all maintained and healthy in the future. You alluded to some lessons that you learned along the way, both doing this and from the two other private projects of that scale. What were some of those key lessons? Delivering on the experiential part is the most important piece. The ski experience out there is what makes it special. Trying to be, if you will, the Augusta of skiing. 
something that if you get the invitation to come to, you're going to take that invitation and you know you're going to have an extraordinary experience, summer or winter, by the way. I think Southwest Montana is a very special place in the summer. And then I think being well capitalized, I think if you look at some of the failures in this space, and this is changing now, it historically, institutional capital probably underestimated the costs of these projects. We financed other projects with Discovery. They're an extraordinary developer, partner, operator across the country and in the Caribbean. And you just have to be exceptionally well capitalized. You cannot utilize significant amounts, if any, debt. And you have to be able to weather storms of various types that come along. YC will probably go through three economic cycles during our ownership period. By the time it's all said and done, I think we're entering one now. So it's been able to weather those cycles because it's extremely well capitalized and was from the start. As you look at this, did it work because of trends that you saw that would allow the underlying economics of the real estate development to grow, the ski industry to go versus just being in the right place at the right time? We hit a unique time in the marketplace. As a distressed investor, we have to have conviction around doing things when people are fearful where Bill Kremer and I have made the most money for our investors has always been during times of crisis. When we started the firm and the first investments we went, made there, it's when we had the Russian bond crisis and the failure of long-term capital management. And then it was again in the mini tech crisis in the early 2000s. And then ultimately the global financial crisis is what led us to buying the YC. And I think we're in a time right now that we're going to see opportunities like that again. But I'd like to think that the skill is recognizing at the time a unique opportunity and then having the conviction to go ahead and make the investment. Kind of curious when you have a private ski mountain that's adjacent to a large public one in Big Sky, how does the relationship between the two, both you have large employee bases and then this private connotation compared to what's just a large, well-loved public mountain? We have a great relationship with Boyne, who operates Big Sky. And we've been friends, and we worked through the acquisitions of Moonlight Basin and Spanish Peaks and ultimately consolidated those into the public ski area, which took a bunch of uncertainty out of the market out there between the various bankruptcies that were going on. So I think we were extremely helpful to Boyne, and we have a great relationship with Boyne and their management team. The public ski area there is I think the second largest in North America, or certainly second largest in the United States, and will soon surpass the largest operator in the combined Park City canyons. I think it's really unique to have a town that's dominated by two large employers, and we have to work collaboratively. We're somewhat self-managed because we don't have a municipality where we are, so we have to work collaboratively with other employers and with the community to make sure that all of the constituents can be successful out there. So we have a good relationship. YC actually borders the mountain and you can ski freely as a YC member from one to the other, which ultimately creates, I think, one of the largest contiguous lift service ski experiences in the world. Basically more than 9,000 acres of lift service skiable terrain, which is pretty unique. So in this path, you can't possibly go through these 14 years without some real challenges along the way. The club started coming out as you bought it from a bumpy place. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced in making this work? Well, the time commitment was significant. So I'd say personally, that was significant and probably 
uh, weighed on my ability to make other investments at the time during what was a unique time in the marketplace. No regrets whatsoever there. Probably some pressure on my family as well, dragging them around the country quite a bit. My kids were really competent and accomplished skiers and snowboarders. And so for me, that was one big benefit is they always wanted to go. And my wife loved to snowboard, so she always wanted to go. So our winners were pretty well set. From sort of business challenges, it was extremely hard to get any construction financing in Montana. And this plays a little bit to the current situation in the banking crisis. I'm a big believer in community banks and in regional banks because they ultimately will do things and put the time in to understand businesses probably more than the big money center banks will, the two big to fail guys. Ultimately, First Republic Bank was a huge supporter of ours early on, did our first construction loan at the Yellowstone Club, and then subsequently did all of our construction financing out there over the years. And it was a great symbiotic relationship. They met a whole bunch of great new clients and we had big loan and deposit relationships with them. And I do fear in what's going on in the world right now that a pullback by these growing regional entrepreneurial banks will have a real impact on the economy. We couldn't get the money center banks to come out and give us the time of day. Now they all want to now. They all want access to our customer base and so forth. But at the time we couldn't. And First Republic was an extraordinary partner through all of our businesses in Southwest Montana. So I'm wishing those guys the very best and we're trying to support them in any way we possibly can, that they can continue to survive independently and thrive as an institution because it's really important to the U.S. economy that we have those banks out there. So as you get closer to your exit on this great investment, what lessons do you take from it that you apply elsewhere in your business? Again, conviction during challenging times having strong conviction about your business thesis, doing the hard work, understanding the mechanics of how something works, doing all the diligence. We were very fortunate here in that we had spent a year studying the operations and real estate development potential of the club when we were trying to buy it before. So we had a unique diligence in terms of what we were trying to do. That also gave us tremendous experience around buying the other assets in the marketplace. Because we were there, we're on the ground, we really understand how things work. We understand what the consumer experience needed to be and how we could deliver it. The idea that these deals, you have to be tremendously patient. Institutional capital sometimes doesn't align well with 15 and 20-year investments. And so we have different capital pockets that invest with us in these transactions that are more long-term, sort of covered land-oriented family offices and endowments that are looking for long-term multiples of capital versus maybe the institutional market that works for better or worse through employment cycles and compensation that's tied to formulas that don't necessarily work over periods longer than 10 or 15 years. Sam, one more question I want to ask you. What's your favorite aspect of investing? I'm a deal junkie. I love deals and I love the more broken and the more complicated, the better because I think that's where real value can ultimately be mined. That's where you get those large multiple transactions. And we've sort of proven that over time in our careers at Cross Harbor. The larger high conviction thematic deals during challenging times are the ones where we've been able to make the most money for our investors. And so that's what I love. I love working on broken stuff that's complicated and scares off the conventional investor in the marketplace. Sam, thanks so much for sharing this incredible story of the Yellowstone Club. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, 
where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.